Luke 8, beginning in verse 22. This is the word of Almighty God. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. So far in the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless this, the reading, and we who have heard. We pray that you would bless also the one who speaks, that you may be glorified as your word comes to our hearts this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at Christ's command that we need to take heed to hear the word and do it. He even went so far last week as to say that his family are those who hear the word and respond to it. I think it's very significant that the Holy Spirit through Luke places this event immediately upon those words. Because here we find an instance where Christ speaks his word and his disciples must respond, and they do. They obey. They get in the boat and they start moving across the lake. And yet, soon the weather changes. It's an account, in other words, where obeying Christ ends with them being in great jeopardy and trial. I think that's an amazing thing that the Holy Spirit has done for us there. Because so often, so often, one of the misunderstood realities of the Christian life is that if you follow Christ, then you will never experience trials again. We know that the the health and wealth gospel does this with the gospel, doesn't it? It it twists the gospel to basically say, if you do whatever it is that that version of the gospel says faith looks like, then you'll have a great life without trials. Now, most of us reject that as not being the gospel, and rightly so, and would never say that because I'm a Christian, I shouldn't experience trials. But how many of us, when the trial comes, questions, how could God let this happen to me? Which is presuming the same thing, isn't it? Well, wait a second, I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to only have sunny days with butterflies. I'm not supposed to have storms and trials in my life. That. That's the unspoken misconception 
that so often we're tempted to have in the Christian life. So here in Luke, we're told, be good soil, hear the word, and bear fruit. Hear the word and do what the word says. And here the disciples hear God's command, Christ's command. They do what he says. And next thing they know, the boat's sinking. Because the first thing that this passage is teaching us is that all true Christians will face storms and trials in this life. All true Christians will face storms and trials in this life. In the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord, remember, says, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. But, you know, because we live in a fallen world, it's not just outward persecution that we need to expect as a believer. We should also expect that we will still get the phone call with the diagnosis. Or the word that someone we love is dead. Or the loss of a job. Or the leaking roof or the broken furnace on the coldest day of the year. We ought to expect a variety of storms and trials in our lives. This text tells us even the apostles didn't get away without experiencing the storms of life. All true Christians will face storms and trials in this life. That was the message that the, the apostles taught as they went about starting the church. We actually read in Acts chapter 14 that Paul and Barnabas, as they went from city to city planting churches, what was their message that accompanied the message of the gospel they preached? They said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we're moving on to the next town. We love you. Right? That's what Acts 14 tells us the apostles did. Paul and Barnabas They didn't say, receive the gospel. It will be wonderful from here, friends. Goodbye. No, they said, through many trials. We'll see each other in heaven. But through many trials, we're going to get there. Peter agrees, by the way. Peter, who, unlike Paul and Barnabas, was on this boat and actually was in a boat with Christ through multiple storms. And he writes to us in his letter, Beloved, do not think it a strange thing concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing had happened to you. Don't act as if the storm coming into your life is unique. No one knows the trouble that I've seen. No, Peter says, we we all know. If you're a Christian, you will know the trouble. The storms of life will come to all Christians. Now, they're going to look different, aren't they? Isn't it true that when we, you can think of our prayer agenda as a good way to think about this. There are some names that show up a lot more and names that show up a lot less. There are names associated with prayer requests that seem very heavy and names associated with prayer requests that seem less heavy. Uh, Sometimes in one week, in one afternoon, I will be on the phone with someone who's 
grieving deeply that their loved one has just received a diagnosis. And 10 minutes later, I'll be on the phone with someone who's complaining that someone at work was mean to them. The two things are both phone calls that are brought about because someone feels a storm in their life. We might look at one of those and say, is that really a storm? But that's, that's if we're not the one experiencing it, isn't it? Have you ever been out on a, a boat, like a whale watch or something? I have a loved one. I won't say whom this individual is, but I have a loved one. We, we went on a puffin watch or something. I, don't, I think it was a puffin watch. It was a pretty clear day as far as the ocean goes. We, we weren't really even out of the little bay thing before he was green. He or she, I won't. This individual was green, green. And uh, like Eustace in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, saying, when is the storm going to stop? And everyone else is thinking, it's a lovely day to sail. But we all, we all know that that's a reality on boats, isn't it? And I, I'm one to speak because if it had picked up even a little bit, I would have been over the edge of that. Uh, I don't have good uh, sea stomach. Uh, and, and some of you, it would take almost the perfect storm before you were curled up on the side of the boat green, right? The different individuals can handle different levels of storm or what we feel like is a storm. I, I think the New Testament wants us to remember that so that we might comfort those who are experiencing hard times without being overly judgmental of uh, whether we think it's really a hard time. Remember something that's said about temptation, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 15. We're told that God uh, actually only permits a level of temptation that the individual can handle and that you each can handle different levels. It says there is no temptation that has overtaken you, but that is common to all men and women, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to suffer beyond, uh, to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, but with it will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I think we need to remember this as we think about the storms that people in the church and outside of the church experience in their lives. Some of you have a better sea stomach. Maybe that's because you've been through a few hurricanes and the other things don't affect you as much anymore. Maybe other people haven't ever experienced a hurricane. But the storms of life will come into every Christian life and we need to comfort and encourage and point each other in the right direction. Here in our text, what kind of storm is it? It's a literal storm, of course. I've been talking about spiritual storms and, and uh, 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 figurative storms, which is something that Christ sets us up for already in Luke, isn't it? At the end of the Sermon on the Plateau, he uses that language that every life, Christian and non-Christian, will have the rain and the floods come against it. And whether or not they stand will depend on where they're built. So he's already used the imagery of a storm to represent the hard things that we endure in life. 
here in our text, we're given a literal storm. And is it just a little storm on the Sea of Galilee? Do we, do we see that it's really just that Matthew had no stomach for waves? And he thinks it's a storm. And Peter and Andrew and James and John are rolling their eyes. Okay, go ahead and wake Jesus. No, no, that's not the case. Remember, four of these men are lifelong professional deep sea fishermen on this lake. And this is a lake that is particularly well known for being perfectly calm one minute. And then because of the way that the hills are set up around that lake, the wind gets funneled through in between the hills. And so all of a sudden you'll be on the lake in the calm and all of a sudden you'll be hit by torrential wind, uh, torrential downpours and horrific winds that just suddenly blast upon the lake. It's like a, a mini hurricane on the lake. And these four men had spent their whole lives experiencing that reality. And here they are with all of their giftedness as sailors and the boat sinking. And there's no indication that it isn't Peter, as always, right at the front of all the others, saying to Jesus, Don't you care? Lord, Master, why are you sleeping? We're drowning here. There's nothing we can do. Don't you care? This is a real storm. They're enduring. It's hard. Now, they're going to be rebuked for what they say to Christ. And how their hearts are lacking in faith. But let's notice one thing important before their rebuke. And that is, they went to the right source. In the midst of their storm, they woke Christ up and spoke to him and looked to him for a solution. Unfortunately, they did so with little faith and so it comes out as an accusation. And doesn't that sound familiar? Lord, don't you care we're perishing? How could this happen to me? Or why would God let this happen? Someone died young. Why would God let this happen? Someone gets a diagnosis. Why would God let this happen? You lose your job. Why would God let this happen? We're not unlike the disciples. Often we go to Christ with an accusation. The text isn't teaching us to do that. It's not saying be like this. Christ would teach us as he rebukes them. Where is your faith? And the text gives us the answer, how we ought to approach Christ. Because the apostles are lacking in faith here, because they're struggling with a, another question still. Despite everything that they've seen over about a year and a half or so of being with Christ almost every day, they're still asking this question, who is this man? And of course, if that's what we're asking about Christ, our faith is going to stutter quite a bit, isn't it? Who is this man? Who is Christ? What does the passage teach us about Christ so that when we face the storm, we don't have to ask who he is, but rather say, Lord, Lord, save us. 
Not don't you care, but Lord, save us. Preserve us. What does the text teach us? I think two things about Christ. Maybe we could say much more than this. But the, the first and obvious thing that it is teaching us about Christ here is that he is the sovereign divine Lord. He is the sovereign divine Lord. We see that he speaks a rebuke. Now, now some commentators, even good commentators, and I think this is unfortunate, look at this word rebuke. He rebuked the wind and waves, and they say, aha, that word is used previously. He rebuked the demons. And then their conclusion is this. Every time he rebukes, Jesus must be rebuking something particularly demonic. So Peter's mother-in-law was sick. And Jesus rebuked. Therefore, the sickness must have been one brought about by Satan himself. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and they left. So then also, in this instance, he rebukes the winds and the waves. The winds and the waves must be Satan trying to sink Christ's boat. I think that's really a sad thought for for a couple of reasons. One, it's just bad exegesis to say it's the same word here. must always be the same word. That, That... you have to argue that better. You have to have more reason than that. But it's, it's sad for some other reasons too. One is that although some Christians don't think Satan and the demons have any activity in the world, because a lot of Christians have ceased to really think that there is a spiritual warfare going on that's angelic. That's unfortunate. But some of us go too far the other direction. And I think those commentators are doing that. Where everything is Satan against me. Everything is the power of demons against me in my life. I think we have to be careful doing that too much. It does two unfortunate things in our thoughts. One, it gives Satan too much credit. It it acts as if anything bad that happens in your life must be because the I'm going to say it the way we would never say it. But this is how the pagans would say it. Because the bad god, Satan, is acting against you. That's almost how we're treating it, right? Satan has power in and of himself to make someone sick. He doesn't have that power. Job teaches us that he has to get permission to have that ability in your life. And not every time you get sick is it because Jesus has given him that permission. Sometimes it's because your body's decaying because of the fall. Satan, don't give him that much credit. Satan doesn't have all authority over all the elements. He doesn't. Don't give him that much credit. But the other problem with thinking like that is that it also, it reduces how we understand what Luke is talking about with Jesus. Because Luke uses this word to teach us how vast the power of Christ is. And it's not that you have the the bad guy, Satan, and the only slightly better good guy, Jesus, and as long as Jesus is there when Satan's doing something, he can cancel it out. Yin and yang. Again, words we don't use, 
but we act, we act a lot like pagans with how we view Christ and the devil sometimes. But that's giving the devil too much credit and Christ not enough. What is Luke teaching us when he says in these three instances that Jesus rebuked something? It's, he's saying Simon's mother-in-law was sick. Jesus rebuked because Jesus has authority over the fallen body. Your body. And he has authority over demons, yes. But he also has authority over the wind and the waves, the elements, the universe itself. In other words, Luke is using this phrase, uh, uh, rebuke, to instill in us what Abraham Kuyper famously said, that there is not one square inch, and we might add one created being or created body within the entire cosmos over which Christ does not declare mine. Satan isn't almost that big. He's nowhere near that big. Christ has authority here. His authority over the winds and waves. Good news. Whether Satan is the one that's bringing trial into your life, or whether someone just hates you for righteousness sake, or whether your body's decaying, or whether your loved ones are dying, or whether you've lost your job because of the economy and Satan didn't have any particular point in trying to bring that upon you. Whatever the storm is, Luke is saying Christ has that authority. Christ is the sovereign divine Lord. And he can just speak. He speaks. Well, when was the last time we saw Christ speak? Or maybe we should say, what is the first time we see Christ speak? To the elements. Remember what Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 tell us about Jesus? Hebrews 1, God at various times and in various ways spoke in the past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heirs of all, heir of all things, by whom he also made the world. Colossians 1, we read with Bill, for by Jesus were all things created that are in heaven, that are on earth, that are visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So when we hear that Jesus is speaking and there's a result with the wind and the waves. It's just what we were already told in chapter 1 of Genesis. He spoke. He spoke. And the world was created. And then, then he spoke and he divided the waters and the land. Just one of many things he did at that point by speaking. But one of them was... He divided the waters and the land. And as we also read with Bill in a poetic retelling of creation in Psalm 104, he set the boundaries so that the water can't cross it again. This is the one that then speaks to the storm on a little, on a little, we call it the sea, on a lake in the land of promise. 
and it is still. He is the divine, sovereign Lord. Now, that point might still leave you terrified. It it still left the disciples a little nervous. It's not the only thing we're taught in this passage about Jesus, if we will have the eyes to see. The disciples are struggling with fear still, and, and we may as well. After all, a divine, a divine power over the wind and waves isn't necessarily comfort to us. All you have to do is go and read Greek and Roman pagan mythology, and you know that a god over the waters may not be a good god. In fact, of all the so-called gods in pagan mythology, Neptune or Poseidon was known as the least consistent, least predictable of all the gods. He might be nice to you one minute and destroy you the next because their god was based on the sea itself, right? The ocean can be calm and then tumultuous. And so their pagan god they created based on the creation itself was violent and, and, and unsafe. But our passage doesn't simply leave us with an uncertainty as to whether Jesus is good. If we consider what the parallel passages teach us, it teaches us something else about who Christ is as well. He's not only the divine sovereign, but he's also the prince of peace. Luke doesn't tell us what Jesus said to the storm. It says he rebuked it. Mark tells us what the rebuke sounded like. What did the disciples hear Jesus say to the wind and waves? Mark tells us, peace, be still. This is the Prince of Peace. This is the Prince of Peace. He can say it to the the storm. He can say it to your heart. That's why he was sent. To save a people from their sins and to be their prince of peace. He speaks. In John 16, right before he goes to the cross, our Savior warns us that in this world we will have trouble. But do you remember what he hedges that around with? What is it he says when he tells us we're going to have trouble? John 16.33, Christ declares peace. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. There's your Prince of Peace. A Prince that reminds you, you will have storms. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the storms. It's a Prince of Peace who on the cross, bearing the penalty for our sin upon himself, spoke again. Into the storm of our guilt and shame, he speaks. It is finished. 
the same sovereign speaking there. In fact, there he turns to a man and declares peace to one who has repented and believed in him. This day you will be with me in paradise. Same voice, same sovereign Lord, who is the Prince of Peace. This sovereign Lord, this Prince of Peace, is one who has experienced the storms with us, hasn't he? We come boldly to the throne of grace for no other reason. There is one there who sympathizes with our weakness, for he has in all ways endured the storms with us and like us. Having never sinned, though. This sovereign Lord will be with you through all the trials, tribulations, storms, and sufferings of this life. Why does he let you go through them? If he has all this power, if he's the Prince of Peace, why not remove all these trials from your life for the rest of your earthly life? Malachi 3.2 tells us one of the reasons he came was to purify us. To purge out the dross. First Peter, the apostle, takes up this theme. First Peter 1.7 The genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All Christians will endure storms. Christ, who is he? He's the sovereign Lord and the Prince of Peace. And he's the one that, in, that uh, goes with you through those storms that you might be made pure and holy. And like him, so that you might have sin put to death in you, that your faith might be increased gazing towards him. Look to Christ. This passage would have you look to him, whatever the storm, knowing that he rules over them all. And through the most chaotic hours, Know that Christ is using those hours to draw you closer to himself and deeper into the peace that surpasses all understanding, which belongs to all those who trust in him alone for salvation. I hope that's true for you. Let's pray.